As I was leaving the office this afternoon, the sun was coming right in that back window. It made me super nervous, and then it dawned on me, oh yeah, the sun goes down before we get to service, so thankful that I won't have that problem. Well, let's stand together this evening and read the 147th Psalm together. Psalmist here writing under the inspiration of Almighty God, starting in verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass to grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For He strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out His command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down His crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before His cold? He sends out His Word and melts them. He makes His wind blow and the waters flow. He declares His Word to Jacob, His statutes and His rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know His rules. Praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence tonight thankful for these words, thankful for their instruction, thankful that they rebuke us in our flippant, casual worship, thankful that they give us a clear path in knowing and understanding what it means to worship rightly. So would you write these truths on all of our hearts in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I don't think that I have to illustrate this uh, at length uh, because I think I've said it in so many ways, but modern worship is filled with glorification not of God, but of man. If you, somebody once asked me if I liked, and I won't say the particular Christian radio uh, station, uh, but one of the, the local radio stations, uh, if I liked listening to it, and I just you asking me, please don't make me answer that question. And, and the answer, honestly, is I, I don't listen to a whole lot of those kind of radio programs because there's so much 
in those stations that teaches you. Uh, and, and friends, music is something, is it not, that we kind of absorb without really thinking through it? Um, and there's so much in some radio programming in Christian spheres that teach us, that instruct us to be self-centered about all of our Christian life. Um, there's so much narcissism in uh, so much Christian music. Uh, somebody, one of my friends recently pointed out that, that largely uh, in modern circles, the reason why we have such bad theology is because we have such bad music. It's narcissistic. It doesn't point to the glory of God. It points to the feelings of man. And so the glory of Psalm 147 tonight is this, and of all of the other psalms in the Psalter, is they never make that error. Um, the, the, The praise psalms of the Psalter, especially these last 15 psalms, don't fall into the trap of being man-centered. Rather, they are good models for worship. And it's one of the reasons, and this is a whole other sermon and a whole other instruction, but it's one of the reasons why I think that we should sing the Psalter. Um, Not exclusively, uh, but I think that that would be a good thing as a church body. Because the Psalms themselves are, I mean, if you want to argue about what, uh, what's what we should sing together. Well, how about the, the very words that the Lord has written? Here's, a, here's an interesting idea. Psalm 147 uses the pronoun He, referring to God, 14 times, and Lord, 8 times. Uh, the psalmist here is, is aiming at the goodness, the majesty, the glory of God. There's many who have divided this psalm and a litany of different ways of how to understand and then preach or go through this psalm, I would suggest to you one of the most helpful ways is to really break it down into three sections, and and that's really the most popular way. There's a whole other question about whether or not this is a chiastic psalm, uh, which I will get to at the end. I, I think that's a good argument, but if we break this into three sections, verses 1 through 6, 7 through 11, and then verses 12 through 20, we begin to see uh, why it is that the psalmist believes that God should be praised. One, uh, because God's, God cares for His people. Uh, God has care for the least significant. God provides for His creation. He blesses the nation. He rules over all of creation. And He reveals Himself to His people. And that, the, those reasons found here in these three sections are reason enough for the people of God to worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's interesting if we look at the first verse of Psalm 147, praise the Lord. There is the imperative that we are to worship Him. And why? For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and the song of praise is fitting. And so the question is, why is the worship of God good, pleasant, and fitting? And the answer to that question is really what the psalmist is all about. And ultimately, under all of this, is the, the, the big reason is because God has taken care of 
all that belong to him. And we begin here in these first verses by dealing with the reality that God cares for his people. Verses 2 and 3, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. There's an argument, we really don't know for sure, but there is an argument that Psalm 147 was likely penned uh, for the dedication of the reconstruction of the walls of Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah. The 12th chapter of Nehemiah tells how the Levites were brought to the city to lead the congregation in celebration with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. There was an entire ceremony. Now we ultimately don't know if this is in fact, there's no explicit reference here that leaves us to say, thus saith the Lord, this was written in the context of Nehemiah chapter 12. But what we do know is that it is good and pleasant and fitting for God's people to praise His name, to, to exalt Him for what He has done. Here's the reality, friends, in, in the question of modern worship. And, and, and you know, one of the things... Now, try not to get sidetracked here. This is a rabbit trail. But... Um, one of the things that I think sometimes happens in the worship wars is people will just fight about style and about preference. Um, younger people, oh, this old music, or older people, the, the, the music my grandkids are listening to, I really just don't like this. And, and all of that frustration at times, I, I just have to kind of chuckle at, well, there's better arguments than just what we like. The question is, is the music doing what it, we intend it to do? And ultimately, the question that we should ask of music is not, is it set to the kind of uh, beat or tempo that I like? And, and, and there's a whole reason why the psalms aren't sung. Uh, is, is some people will say, well, but they're awkward. We just don't sing that way. Well, I mean, we don't sing that way because we're not doing it. But if we started to do it, we would sing that way. So, that, that goes out the window. But ultimately, our singing is not to meet some emotional need. Although our affections are tied into our worship and by God's mercy flow out of right praise. Ultimately, though, right worship exalts God for what He has done. It is a device by which the Gospel and the redeeming works of God are heralded to the congregation and to a lost and dying world that gathers with us. And so don't we often, when we're talking about the worship service, begin to drift in the way of subjective arguments and that's where we get into fights when if we really would just come back to, well, are we singing for the glory of God because it is good, pleasant, and fitting? It is right that the people of God, whether it was in Nehemiah chapter 12 or at 810 Austin Street, it is the right thing to do right now to sing praises to His name. Because His wondrous works are not things that we should expect. His redemptive, salvific kindness to lost humanity in caring for us as His people is not something that we should turn around and go, well, that's obvious that you would save us. Think about it. Think about how often 
We allow our feelings and emotions to move in the direction of self-centered subjectivity instead of always putting the glory of God and His gospel at the forefront. God has continually saved perishing sinful people from their depraved hearts, and it is good and fitting that His people then would, would respond in right worship. Reflections on how God brought the exiles back from Babylon and, and reestablished them in a rebuilt Jerusalem leads the psalmist then to reflect on God's power seen in his numbering and naming of the stars. Look at verse 5. Blessed is he, excuse me, sorry, that's verse 5 of 146. Uh, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The major point of verses 4 through 6, he he determines the number of the stars. He, He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. And the major point here is not that God cares for the stars. It's that He cares for you and I. It's in fact, in His creative work, not astonishing that He names every one of them. That, that He knows all of them. I, I was listening, I caught a, a snippet of someone talking about how foolish we are as people, and I don't even believe this person was a believer, but he was talking about how people think of themselves in the near context when in reality we should back up and see the greater context. And so he said, you know, we tend to think of ourselves as citizens of the city of St. Angelo, but really we have to see that we're citizens of Texas and beyond that of of the United States of America. But we're really, when you back up and look at it, we're living on a planet that is spinning in nothingness. And that nothingness is constantly increasing. And yet we all just kind of boil that down to, but that's normal. We're all molecular beings and and, and we we reason out that that's just, there's nothing, there's not a big deal there. But friends, the, the reality is, I think in thinking through all of that, it's interesting how a pagan, what I think is a pagan, can, can see the grandeur of the reality of the context in which we live and all of the stars of the heavens and, and the stars in and of themselves being named by God is not amazing in and of itself. What is amazing is that the same one who hung every star in the heaven and who has named them pays attention to each one of us. He knows us by name. Those who are in Christ, He calls us and He regenerates us and He sanctifies us. And the Bible tells us that one day He will glorify us. God's care for His creation and the least significant in the kingdom cannot be misstated or or overstated rather. God cares for everyone that belongs to Him. I think there's an entire sermon that could be preached out of verse 6. The the Lord lifts up the humble and He casts the wicked to the ground and the reality of Him caring for every member and that dovetailing with the New Testament reality that every member of the body of Christ matters. We should praise God because 
he cares for the least, least significant. We, we also should pray because our God provides for his creation. Look at verses 7 through 9. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He, now, now some would argue that that's another break in the text. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass to grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. The psalmist here is telling us that God should be praised because He cares for His people, because He cares for the least significant among His people, but also we should praise God because He even cares for the animals. I'm not going to go through this, but there's if you ever get a, a chance to read... Oh gosh. Not Herman Bavink. Abraham Kuyper on the Noetic Covenant, absolutely fascinating how far-reaching God's promise to never flood the earth again really is, and that it's not only to human beings, but the reality is God has promised to care for all of His creation, and He does. Um, It's interesting, I think, this is not exclusively true, but agrarian communities, that is farmers, rural areas, they tend to understand and see the goodness of God in creation more explicitly. Uh, They have been there with, you know, pulling calves and doing all the farming work, and they realize that their entire enterprise of, of, of farming doesn't work without the Lord. Uh, that God is the one that ultimately sustains the harvest of crops and uh, the, 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 the um, care for His animals. Now, you know, it's interesting, I don't know how many times that I have been engaged with this question, and usually it's someone that has a dog or a cat that they really, really love, and they will come to texts like this or or in Revelation where we see that Christ returns on a white horse. And, Jay, do you believe that there are animals in heaven? And really what they're looking for often is a definitive answer that, that foo-foo is going to be in heaven when they get there. I never jump into that because you're not winning. Uh, there, there is a whole argument that God... Hey, left his eternal imprint on humanity alone. But I don't know. I think very well God, when he creates, recreates the, the new heavens and the new, new earth, who knows uh, all of the different uh, wonderments that will be there. Uh, that's not the point here. Uh, and so when people come to Psalm 147 to use it as a proof text that Listen, guys, I used to be way more irritated with this question until I got my dog, Bo, and now I'm like, you know, there's some validity to the question. Because um, I don't care about Fufu, but Bo really would, ah, yeah. I, I think what we need to understand is we don't come to the Word of God to ultimately serve what can be, if we're not careful, our idols. Um, but who knows what the Lord will do? I, I think He's making all things new, so... Uh, we can be help, hopeful. What, what we do know is that in the here and now, our God is the one who sustains everything. And He is owed our worship 
rightly because he does care for even the animals uh, among the earth. If we move on, starting in verse 12, we see also that God is rightly to be worshipped because He blesses the nation. Verses 12 through 14, look with me. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For He strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. Uh, What the psalmist is pointing to here is the reality that Jerusalem was standing only by the divine providence of Almighty God. That it is, God, do we build gates for our cities? Yes. In the preceding verse 11 where it, it talks about horses. It's okay to, to have armies that are cavalry that are mounted on horses and, and all of those things. But we, we understand ultimately, every time that we walk through the pages of Scripture and every time we walk through the pages of history, when God gives victory to a nation and He provides protection... It ultimately is only because of His kindness and His working in the world. The the reason why uh, the nation stands and the children go on is because of Almighty God. And He deserves to be praised in light of that reality. In fact, I think verse 14 is very interesting here. He makes peace in your borders. It is God who makes peace. Men may sign treaties. They may stand to intimidate the adversary and bring them to the negotiation table. But it ultimately is God who is the one who has brought peace into the borders. But then finally, He fills you with the finest of wheat. Now here is what we would expect, logically. And logic doesn't always work out. I can't remember. I'm not going to say that. Um, Logic ultimately doesn't always win the day. But logically, in light of God being the one who secures the nation, who sends the rain, so that in verse 14, not only is the nation secure, but the crops are ultimately plentiful. And because of that reality, everyone is well fed with here what is listed as, as the finest of wheat. What would be natural and right is... What, in light of all of that, that man would praise and give thanks to God? That across our nation, we wouldn't sit down at McDonald's or, God help us, Starbucks or wherever it is that we like to eat uh, at home and consume that food without first stopping to give thanks in an act of worship for the very thing that God has provided. I have a friend that every time he prays, he, he always says, and the first time that he did it, it caught me off guard in a good way. He says, thank you for pro- providing, Lord, this food yet again right on time. And I remember the first time I heard Ed pray that, I thought, my wife always brings me food right on time. Uh, but then as I thought about it, it's so true. In right proportion, in the right moment, God makes sure that we are fed providentially in so many different ways. He's working so that that would come to pass. And yet, is that what we find in our nation and even sometimes in our homes? Are we thanking God and worshiping Him for what He has provided? What we see is this in the large picture. 
we see the reality that when God blesses a nation with peace throughout history, the sad reality is that those nations often bear out the, the truth of Romans chapter 1 and that instead of worshiping the Creator in light of the peace and the provision God has given, they worship the creation. And is that not true in our country today? We've come to a point where intellectually, materially, in so many ways, I think religiously, we are given the finest of wheat. Um, There's not a better day and age to study the Word of God. We have access to so many resources. You can carry in a laptop centuries worth of what God has been doing among His people. And yet, what is more compelling to most of our neighbors and in our own homes, if we're honest at times, can't be found in our Bibles, but is found on Netflix or Hulu or Peacock or whatever critter you watch on TV. It's it's ultimately that, that instead of coming to the provision of God in caring for His people, in in, in, and friends, if you're, if you're thinking through verses 4 through 6, that, oh, it's so good that he takes care of it, and I think I said this last time in a different way, the least of these, and you're thinking of someone out there, you've misunderstood the text, we individually all should realize that we are the least of these in the sight of, of an, a, a holy God. Um, God rules over his creation. He gives peace to our nation. And yet we don't worship him. I'm not telling you you should be contentious about this when I say this, but friends, there should be something unsettling to us that we think that it's somewhat normal that people don't worship rightly. That they've been given all of that, and yet instead of worshiping in spirit and in truth, they seem to just cry out, we deserve better and more. And often what we find is we're aiming those kinds of conversations in the political sphere of if you just give our politicians long enough, they will provide something better and more. And I promise you this, they will never provide anything more than what God does in and through them to be of benefit to the nation, if that makes, makes sense. God's rule over the providence of giving peace and giving plenty should... Re- should elicit out of us a right response of worship. Then we go on to verses 15 through 18, and they return again to the care of God over His creation, but in this case to rule over its weather and its reoccurring seasons. Start with with me in verse 15. He sends out His command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. Y'all are going to have to stretch your imagination on that. Go back two years. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and he melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. God uh, ultimately cared for Jerusalem for his people 
for the least of these. But here we see that even the seasons and the weather are in his hand. It's interesting, isn't it? Whenever we see a natural catastrophe, this has happened several times where a pastor will get up, excuse me, and say something like, well, ultimately this natural disaster was an act of God and it was in his hand. And then inevitably somebody's going to get mad at that. And then there will be another pastor that will, you know, another group of people that will come. That just can't be true. And so the pastor will apologize or whatever happens. Friends, everything that happens, every storm, every season is in the Lord's hands. And he has a purpose for it. If we were to rewind history back into the 1500s, we would see the reality of this coming full, uh, to full flowering in verse 18, uh, because it became kind of a, a special verse to the English people. You'll remember, those of you who are historians, in the late 16th century, after uh, the defeat of the Spanish Armada, there was this uh, group of Spanish vessels that were planning to invade England, and the Armada was launched in the summer of 1588 to defeat uh, the English. The armada consisted of 130 ships containing 7,000 sailors and 17,000 soldiers. 130 ships. Get that. 130. That's a lot of boats and a lot of people to conquer England. And the English had 90 ships under the command of Francis Drake. This battle ensued for days. The, the English continued to come back and they would rout the armada and they would bombard uh, from opposing sides. They would broadside the uh, Spanish armada and they, they fought fearlessly throughout these days. But the battle ultimately was not won because the English were so valiant. The uh, battle was won because all of a sudden a strong wind churned the waters of the English Channel and eventually drove the Spanish galleons up the channel of the North Sea and they were destroyed. The English victory was absolute and complete. The Spanish uh, defeat was total. And the English celebrated their deliverance from this absolutely staggering, and it makes me think of the narrative in First Chronicles chapter 20 and King Jehoshaphat and the horde of people coming against the nation of Israel. The English celebrated their, their uh, deliverance by minting a new coin, which bore the, the Latin phrase that means God blew. And it comes directly from verse 18. He sends out His Word and He melts them. He makes His wind blow. The waters flow. So not only does God provide security, but again provides victory over our adversaries. But finally... What we find is in verses 19 and 20, the greatest reason that we should praise God, that we should worship in spirit and in truth is because God has revealed Himself to us. Verses 19 and 20. He declares His Word to Jacob, His statutes and His rules to Israel. He has not dealt with us Excuse me, he has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. 
You know, it's interesting that in the United States church, American religion today, often if you talk about imperatives found throughout the New Testament, that is things that God commands for us to do, people will go, oh, that's just, that's old school. We don't need to worry about that. But do you notice in verse 20 what the response is of the people of God in, in the giving of His Word, both the indicatives and the imperatives? It is that they praise Him for who He is and what He has done. The law is not burdensome to us, not because we save ourselves, but of course because we are hidden in Christ and we are so thankful. The reason that we should worship is because God has made Himself known through the person and the work of Christ. So then the question has to be this. What truly delights God? And if you were keeping track and you go, we skipped verses 11 and 12. You're right, we did. Why? Or excuse me, what truly delights God in worship. We have seen that many make the, the mistake of making themselves and their own ego and their own feeling and their own musical preference and, and fill in the blank a litany of other self-centered things the point of worship. And we've looked at the great reasons why God should be praised. But the question really has to be in worship. And the only question that ever matters when we gather for worship is not what we like. Now, friends, we can ask the question of what do we like in worship when we construct our own universe and sovereignly provide for it for millennia. Then that's a fair question. Until then, it is reasonable that we would ask, what does God delight in worship. Look at verses 11, excuse me, 10 and 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. And what we have in those two verses is a negative and a positive. What God does not delight in and what He does, in fact, delight in in verse 11. So that, let's start there. What is it that God delights in? He delights, He takes pleasure in those who fear Him and in those who hope in His steadfast love. Now, I don't know about you, but those two words immediately as they jump off the page... Uh, the fear of the Lord and, and hope in His steadfast love, fearing and hoping, I don't know that those things synonymously go together in my mind. Like, if you gave those two words to a modern worship writer who is going to write with the aim of stirring the emotions of an individual or of a congregation, do, do fear and hope really go together? I mean, ultimately, doesn't, doesn't hope tend to make us run in the direction of the thing that we are hoping in light of? And doesn't fear generally do the exact opposite? Cause us to kind of recoil and go, I don't know about this thing. And, and so in our minds, as we, as we look at those, uh, that reality in verse 11, there is immediately a tension there. And for, for some of us, the, the, the right response to that tension is just to gloss over the text. 
The right thing to do is to understand, well, if fear and hope don't seem to go together, but they are in fact the two things that God delights in, then we must come to a better, clearer understanding of what it means to fear and to hope. And so if we look throughout the Psalter, and you don't have to turn to every one of these verses, but but we think broadly about fearing the Lord. I, I had a family member call me one time around Halloween. And they said, Jay, I just drove past a church, and there is a sign that says that we are to fear God. And it had like a Halloween decoration. Emphasis. What is that? I didn't know that we were called to fear God. No, absolutely we are. But we need to understand that it's not the same kind of cultural use of the word uh, fear, that kind of servile or, or, or being intimidated altogether. Uh, but it's also not, I think, diluted down into what some would have it. Psalm 25, verse 14, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. Or Psalm 34, verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him, and He delivers them. Or Psalm 103, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His, and here we are at steadfast love again, His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. And so one tendency, I think, is to come to the the understanding of to fear the Lord and to think, well, it's only just an affectionate type of warm and fuzzy uh, feeling. Now, I do believe that there is a, a, a... an affection that flows out of the heart of a regenerate believer that is uh, filial or, or has a fatherly connotation to it. We fear the Lord the way that we should fear a good and a loving father. But we need to be careful about not diluting our understanding of the fear of the Lord. And, and this could be an entire series of, I think, expositional sermons on the fear of the Lord. But uh, we should be careful about not diluting it down to just a, a fatherly or a filial fear. It, it is that. But what do we do when we come to Isaiah? And you can turn here. Turn to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. Starting in verse 12. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear. Don't have that servile fear. Nor be in dread, which I think is an intensified fear. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. That gives us an indication of what it means to fear the Lord, to acknowledge Him as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So here we have in one verse, don't fear and dread the way the world fears uh, according to their conspiracy. And that's a whole topic about fearing and conspiracies and the way I see that impacting the church. Don't fear that way, 
But then there is a good fear and a good dread, and that is of the one who is holy. And friends, if, if you think it's only a fatherly fear of the Lord that we should have, walk through your Bible, and every time that you find frail man coming into contact with a holy God, what you will find is that he trembles. That there is a weight, a, grav- a gravitas. That there is a, a dread almost... Um, and rightly so, at the majesty and the glory of God. And my question is, when we worship together, and not only at LifePoint, but think about your time in church in a broad sense, do we traffic in patterns of coming before the Lord in a reverential fear of His holiness and having a kind of dread that the rest of the world realizes that God is at work among us and that we take His name seriously. Does that mark our churches? Or is it kind of casual and light and flippant and airy? I would suggest that often it's the latter of the two. And why is that? It's because so often, again, we have fallen into the rut of worshiping not according to who God is, but according to our own feelings. To illustrate this word dread, and I think what it really, I think, means my dog, Bo, he's an Australian shepherd, mouthy little mutt. And when my kids, in the morning time, when they gather around him and they're petting him and they're feeding him things that their mother doesn't want them to feed him, uh, Bo kind of licks their hands and he's, he's excited and, and, and he is engaged with them. Uh, in a way that they delight in their relationship in those moments with Bo. But the second that they try to run away from him, like they're running down the hall, my daughter, when I when we get to the end of an evening, I'll yell at Bo, put her to bed, Bo, and Bo just, and I mean, he'll grab her from the arm and put her in bed. And she hates it. There is a sense of dread. In fact, when she's kissing me goodnight often, and I go, put her to, and she'll stop me and go, no, Daddy, don't do that. Don't do that, because he's going he's gonna to bite my ankle. I don't like that. Now, I don't mean to trivialize God in, in, in this sense, but I think what we see is that when we run away from the living God, there is a sense of dread. When we begin to sin against Him and live our lives for our own desires and we're not moving in His direction by His kindness and His mercy, then what ultimately befalls us is, is a, a sense of, of anxiety over the reality that we have departed genuine fellowship and communion with the Holy One. And so what that dread does for us is it seals us, it brings us back to Him, it, it gives us the, 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 the fixed feeling of dread that we would not leave Him. And what we ultimately know as believers is the reason then that we don't, uh, that w- the, the, the thing we dread the most is going away from the living God. 
of not worshiping Him rightly, of not relating to Him in a way that declares the goodness of all that He has done to bring us to redemption. We don't want to move away from Him. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Get there. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, and I think that this is really what the dread is. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When we worship God, Truly and rightly, we have a sense of dread knowing that our God is conforming a people for Himself to the image of His only begotten Son. And if we do things that do not bring glory to His name, that do not put Him in His rightful place of receiving our adoration, then He will rightly chasten us. And that brings a feeling to us of of vexation that we wouldn't want to move in that direction. And what the psalmist says here in verse 11, excuse me, verse 10, is that what he does not delight in then is, is the strength of the horse nor the pleasure of the legs of a man. He doesn't delight in us coming before Him with our own strength and with our own thoughts and feelings and our own man-centeredness being wrongly placed before His being heralded as the one who takes care of His creation, who moves in the direction of the downcast, who cares for the nation, who rules over creation, and who ultimately reveals Himself to His people. The reason, friends, why, and this is to state it as simply as I can, the reason I used to, when I first came into conversations about right worship, and and there would be people that would get grumpy about, that's just man-centered worship, and it just sounded like, man, you're just cranky just to be cranky. Uh, We've got to be careful about not articulating our being against man-centered worship out of a self-righteousness. Because here is the the real reason why it is absolutely objectionable to put man at the center of worship. Because man will never save himself. And And ultimately, God has done so much gloriously to redeem a people for His own name. And what I find often is people will say, well, I mean, we just love people and we want them to see Jesus. Okay, good. Then put Jesus at the center of the worship and not yourself. 
Because often what worship has turned into is not an exaltation of the one who can redeem and who does rule sovereignly and who can. Friends, here's the reality. People that concoct worship services where they want to give people feelings that will give them an emotional catharsis are leading them past the one who is spoken of in Psalm 137 verse 3. The one who binds up our wounds and brings us genuine healing. God-centered worship ultimately brings Him glory, yes, but it also brings about the healing and restoration of God's people. So if we are going to worship, we must always keep in mind that what God delights in is the one who fears His name, who is aware of His holiness, and who puts His hope not in His own strength, not in His own legs or His own devices, but only in the steadfast love of Almighty God. Would you pray with me? Father, You are good, and You are wise, and You are kind. And Father, we know that far too often we have put our hope in princes and kings and in man-centered devices. And Your, your church suffers today because of that reality. So Father, in our own hearts individually, would You Give us the the sweet gift of repentance that we would not make worship about ourselves, but that we would cry out praising You for all that You have done to bring glory to Your name and salvation to Your people. And Father, as we come repentantly, individually, we ask that You would stir the heart of the nation and that we could see afresh and anew A spirit of revival where people are turning from sin. Not just making blind professions of faith, but where they're really, really converted. And Father, where they are really healed from the tyranny of sin and Satan. We ask it all in Christ.